0: If you would, please open your Bibles with me to First John chapter two. We've come this far in our study of First John, and we know that chapters one and two are focused on fellowship, fellowship with Christ, and we'll see chapters three through five will focus on sonship. We introduced the first test of fellowship last week. This was the test of obedience. And we'll actually see that carry over into the beginning of our text this morning. And we will also be introduced to another test of fellowship. It's the test of love. Let's start reading in 1 John 1.8. We're going to kind of get a running start at this because chapter 2 just continues the thought from the end of chapter 1. Chapter 1 verse 8. If we say that we have no sin that is, as a nature, we don't have a sin nature, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Very black and white from John. And then in chapter 2, he says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. My little children. That's technion in the Greek. It's the diminutive form of technon, child. So he's saying child, but it's more specific than just child. It's my little children. It's a soft way of speaking to these Christians he's writing to. This is also said by Jesus, and it's only recorded one place in the Gospels, and it's in John's Gospel. In John thirteen thirty three, Jesus calls his disciples little children. The only instance that little children is used in the Gospels And listening to Jesus use this language must have caused quite an impact on John, because just in this first epistle of his, he uses the term little children seven times, Um, and he is the only one of the New Testament writers who uses the term little children. He's referring to babes in Christ, or new believers, And it's interesting to see one of these sons of thunder, as he was called by Jesus, him and his brother. It's interesting to see him now calling other believers little children, from going from this brash, vibrant man to a calm, gentle spirit. What a heart change that is. After walking with Jesus since he was 15 or 16 years old, we've seen the son of thunder Turn into this marshmallow. And it's beautiful to see. He says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If you remember back in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That could lend a new believer to think, Well, if I can just ask for forgiveness be forgiven, what's prohibiting me from, you know, living fast and loose, just going to God, asking for forgiveness? What prohibits that? Well, John says now, and it's more of a qualification to his previous statement, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. It's not a liberty to you to go out and sin just because you have forgiveness. Now, if you do happen to fall into some sin then Jesus Christ is there, and he's your advocate. But I write these things to you that you may not sin. Paul, in the last part of Romans 5, talks about grace abounding, this abounding grace. And in the first verse of the next chapter, Romans 6, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And that's a good point made by Paul. If we are born again into Christ and we are a part of that family now, the flesh no longer rules over us. It does not have the same power that it had before we were saved. The flesh takes a step back. The spirit should now be ruling our lives as Christians. Now, make no mistake, that old man will try to rise up, and he will try to take back over. Every day, we make the decision to let the Spirit rule in our lives. This liberty we have in Christ is not freedom to sin, it's freedom from sin. You no longer have to live in sin, as you did before. When there was nothing else governing your life, it was all about me? What makes me feel good? What promotes my agenda? These are all questions from the flesh. But when the Spirit takes control, we have that liberty in Christ. That liberty is from sin, not to sin. We'll talk more about uh, the commandments, following God's commandments, and how that should be influenced by our love for him. And it all comes back to love. But of course, we are humans. And John knows that he's writing to humans. He says, and if anyone sins, if anyone falls into a sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You may notice that the word advocate in the Greek, is parakletos. It's the same word that's translated comforter when talking about the Holy Spirit. So it can mean both comforter and advocate. We have a comforter in the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell in us. We have an advocate, and the sense is like a lawyer. He advocates for us at the throne room of God. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Revelation 12.10 tells us that Satan stands day and night before the Father, accusing the brethren, accusing Christians. Jesus is there, and he is making intercession for us. He is our advocate in that courtroom setting. Satan accuses Christians for their shortcomings. Oh, you call yourself a pastor? Look what you did this week. God, do you see what this guy did? And he calls himself a pastor. I don't call myself a pastor. Y'all do. So I'm clear there. But Jesus steps in in this situation and says, no, I, yes, yes. He did mess up. He does fall short, but he's covered. I've covered him in my blood. You can put that on my account. That account has already been settled. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This word, propitiation, is very important. And it carries a meaning beyond just what we think of as Christ switching places with us. And that is true. That's accurate. But there's something more to it. It also speaks of a wrath that was settled. On the cross, every sin that humanity would ever commit, had ever committed, and would ever commit was laid on Jesus' shoulders. He bore the weight of humanity's sin and god's wrath on the cross was meted out on christ you see we have a loving god but we also serve a just god and a just god requires that something be done about the problem of sin there cannot be an action without a reaction our our actions carry consequences From the very beginning, when he instituted sacrifices, even before the institution of sacrifices, we see when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they sinned. That first sin had to be covered by the death of an animal. God killed a lamb and clothed them with that lamb. From the very beginning, sin required death. And so God would not be just if he just let us get away with it, live however we wanted, sin abounding. But there was no death, no punishment. There's no justice in that. So what does he do? He purposes before he creates us that his son would come to the cross and bear our sin for us. God is loving but he is also just. Isaiah 53.10 reads, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Bruise literally means to crush him. It pleased the Lord to crush him. And that for our sins. In chapter 1, verse 9, the text says that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. But, in order to be just in the remission of our sins, the sentence that was ours had to be paid for, had to be served by Jesus. That's the only way that there can be justice in us not getting what we deserved. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This verse seems to be really strong evidence for an unlimited atonement. There are three ways that proponents of limited atonement draw the line between ours and the whole world in this verse. And I'm going to run through them really quickly. If you're not interested, I'll let you know when you can tune back in. It is worth noting that the word cosmos which is translated as world, does not always mean all people in every case that it's used. Um, In John 12, 19, cosmos does not literally mean the whole world. However, no dictionary gives cosmos the meaning of only the elect. Okay, and you'll see why that's important. He himself is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world, cosmos. The first way that proponents of limited atonement try to read this verse is that John was writing this epistle to churches in the area of Asia Minor. Okay, that's a fact. Therefore, the line between ours and the whole world is drawn geographically ours is taken to mean the elect living in Asia Minor and the whole world refers to the elect living outside of Asia Minor. Okay, that's the first way. Second, others draw the line racially with ours meaning the elect among the Jews and the whole world meaning the elect from among the Gentiles. Okay, third way they look at it, the last distinction is made chronologically where ours refers to the elect that was presently living at the time of this writing. You know, it would have been the first century. And the whole world refers to the elect in subsequent centuries. Okay. Now, if we look at the rest of John's writings, the only other time the phrase, the whole world, is used is in 1 John 5.19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And in that context, it does mean literally the whole world, um, not some subsection of people. Okay? Thus, the presumption that we would take um, would be that John means the same thing in this verse, in verse 2, as he does later in his letter. And this would mean that Christ died for all all men, everywhere, though some are not ultimately saved. And there is a very important distinction that we need to make. You cannot equate proponents of unlimited atonement with proponents of universalism. Universalists will say that everyone is ultimately saved. That's incorrect. Not everyone is ultimately saved. But Jesus Christ paid for the sins of the world. Um, and that is equally as true. So to equate proponents of unlimited atonement with universalism is a straw man. That's not accurate. So I say all of that to say this. And if you fell asleep there, you can tune back in now. This verse is saying that Jesus Christ died for all men. We know that the will of God is that all men should be saved. My dad can work hard to provide money for our family. My mom can work hard to use that money, go to the grocery store and buy food for us, cook a nice meal, set it on the table in front of me. If I go home and I stare at that food and I don't partake of it, she still provided the meal, but I didn't take that meal and use it for my benefit. Okay, that's similar to Jesus dying on the cross for all sins. But if we don't take that gift, then it's not effective for us. I hope that makes a little more sense for you. Uh, John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So we're shifting gears a little bit here. We're going from talking about Jesus, the propitiation, limited atonement, unlimited atonement, to the second test of fellowship. This is the test of obedience. Verse 3 reads Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Back up to verse three. Um, we see in Second Corinthians, Paul reluctantly boasts in accordance with the people who were exalting themselves For their Jewish heritage. Um, There were these Jews who were boasting and apparently got to Paul, and so he was like, Well, I'll show them. But he did it reluctantly. Um, He says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. That's in 2 Corinthians 11. The Jewish people were boasting about their heritage. And they were boasting about having the law of God. They thought that they were very special. And they were special because they had the law. But it didn't stop with having the law. Righteousness is keeping the law. It didn't stop with just having the law. It is not simply enough to have knowledge of Christ, to have knowledge of the law. James said, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of it all. We should look to Jesus as the ultimate example of this. When we sin, when we do not keep his commandments, we are loving the world more than we are loving God. And that is the the most simple way that we can put it. We know that Jesus led a sinless life, which means he always placed the will of the Father above his own will. He continually delighted in keeping God's commandments, and he did so more than he delighted in satisfying the flesh, in satisfying his own desires, we talked, I believe it was last week, about Jesus praying in the garden. God, take this cup from me, this cup of suffering that he was about to drink from. God did not do that. Jesus did have to follow, follow through with the cross. But this satisfying of the flesh and the denial thereof can be seen while Jesus was tempted on the mountain. After his baptism, well, and we'll look at the the mountain temptation scenario a little bit more detailed later when we talk about the less of flesh, less of the eyes and pride of life. Uh, that's a very potent example of that, uh, but we'll continue to move on here. but whoever keeps his word truly the love of God is perfected in him. by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought also himself to walk just as he walked. So we're talking about obeying, obeying the commandments of God, but we can see these different stages of obedience, even in our kids. You see, some people obey because they have to. They have no choice. Some people obey because they need to, and then finally you get to a place where you obey because you want to. And these are three distinct stages we can see most kids kind of go through. Some people stop at stop signs because they have to. They see a cop waiting just around the corner to get them if they don't stop. They know that they're going to get a ticket if they don't stop at the stop sign. Therefore, they stop. They obey because they have to. There's no choice in the matter. Some people obey because they need to. Employees obey their boss because they need to. They need that paycheck that comes at the end of the two-week period. They need that paycheck to support their family. Therefore, employees obey their bosses. But this last level of obedience, I'll call it, this is the level where Jesus, and now John, tell us that we should be residing. You obey because you want to. Because the love that you have for Jesus informs you wanting to obey him. Little kids do what you tell them to do because they have to. They'll be spanked if they don't. As they grow up, you may introduce an allowance to them. And now they're obeying you because they need to. They really need these new sneakers, you know. this new video game that's coming out. So they save up their allowance. They obey because they have to. But then they come to a point where they look at you and they see the sacrifices that you've made. They see what a good parent you've been all these years, even in the discipline. And they see that the trash is filling up and they take it out because they want to. That is a different level of obedience. When they start obeying you because they want to, you know they've crossed this invisible line somewhere. That's a big step. Well, John doesn't want us to obey Christ because we need to or because we have to. He wants us to obey because we want to. And it is love that informs that. And this is the mark of someone walking in the truth. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now, this idea of truth, being with the one who keeps God's commandments, has stuck with John in his old age. In his gospel, chapters chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. We see there obedience to the commandments and truth being with us uh, intertwined. John fourteen twenty one. Reads, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The words of Jesus. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Again, Jesus' words are still ringing in John's ears. John thirteen fifteen, Jesus tells his disciples in reference to him washing their feet, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. If you love me, you should follow my example. Verse seven, brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The law and the prophets are complete in love. And that is this old commandment that he's talking about. The old commandment is love. Jesus says in Matthew 22:40 You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it: You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Then Jesus later tells his disciples, a new commandment. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. John 13, 34. The commandment there is upgraded. It goes from love the neighbor as yourself to love as I have loved you. We can all love our neighbors a little bit differently. Um, based on that first commandment. It's predicated on how I love myself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. But there is no mistaking the kind of love that Jesus showed towards us. Love your neighbors as I have loved you. That narrows the definition of what our love should look like. Jesus left his first abode. He came, manifested himself in the flesh. He came down to our level. And he loved us so much that he died here. He came to us, died for us, and rose again. That is the kind of love that we are to emulate in this new commandment. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Again, we see this contrast between light and darkness. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That's pretty bad when we are blinded by darkness. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. There's really no gray area for John. Uh, He understands that the world is actually very black and white. When it all comes down to it, you're either with Christ or you are against him. You're either in the light or you're in the darkness. You either love or you hate. There's nothing in between. And John illustrates this dichotomy of hate and love using the concept of light and dark. Now, if you remember, darkness is only the absence of light. If we follow John's comparison to a logical end, we can see that hate resides where there is no love. If love is in a place, hate cannot be there. Because if light is in a place, darkness cannot be there. Darkness is the absence of light, whereas hate is the absence of love. Because our natural bent as humans is towards hate, that's what we revert to. Without the purifying influence of, of Christ in our life that light we revert back to hate in luke 11:23 christ said he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters there's no middle ground you're either with him or you're against him i write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. You may notice uh, that the tenses in verses 12 through 14, there's a shift. Uh, He says, I write to you, I write to you, I write to you. And then he says, I have written to you. And don't let that throw you off. Uh, he's actually not referring to any other writings, but just this letter. Um, if you think of it as he's writing the letter um, to him, he has written, and uh, he is also writing. So it it should follow logically, uh, but that trips some people up. But don't don't put too much thought into that. Uh, it's like a form of idiom that he uses, but. John is speaking here of spiritual maturity. He's talking about little children in Christ, fathers in Christ, and young men in Christ. He refers to those who are new to their walk with Christ tenderly as little children, technion. When we first come to Christ, we focus on the elementary principles. We focus on the good news that brought us into him in the first place. We think of how he died and rose on account of our sins that we may be forgiven. And that excites us. As new believers, man, there's nothing greater than that in the world. And that is a good thing. We should be excited about that. And even as we age, we're learning more about those things. And it still excites me, the good news of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3.2, it reads, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Paul is recognizing these delineations between new Christians, maturing Christians, and mostly matured Christians. Um, There is this continuity throughout Scripture So he addresses the little children, and he says, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. That is an elementary principle of our faith, and that's a good thing. Then he addresses the fathers, the mostly matured Christians. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And that is not an elementary concept. The more and more you think about the eternality of Jesus with the Father in their eternal state, the more you realize, man, I just don't know anything about this. I mean, it is, it's hard for us to grasp. I would say impossible to fully grasp. The more mature believers are gathering something different from the text than the young believers Then he addresses the young men, those who are more mature than the little children, but not quite to where the fathers are. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. These young men have kind of figured it out. And later, just a couple verses down, a couple sentences down, John tells us, how these young men have overcome the wicked one. We'll keep reading. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. So again, he addresses little children. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men. Now, this is the key here. Because you are strong and the word of God abides (laughs) in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. So he tells us how these young men have overcome the wicked one. Because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. How important it is for us as Christians, as maturing Christians, to constantly be in the word of God. The word of God abides in them. Psalm 119, 9 through 11 says it very plainly. And I love this verse. How can a young man... How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. How can a young man cleanse his way? By abiding in the word of God. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet. A light to my path. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. The word of God informs where we step, it illuminates our path. And we all know John 15:5, the words of Jesus: I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And again, abiding. We are abiding in Christ, in the word of God. A grape on the vine doesn't have to strain to become ripe. It abides in that vine. And that vine provides it nutrients that it then uses to grow and to ripen. To a beautiful, plump grape. But the grape itself does not strain for that. It simply abides. Abide in him, and his work will be perfected in you. But it does take time. You know, a little kid can't grow to be a full-grown man overnight. It takes time. There is a maturing process. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. I'll turn your attention to Matthew 6 24 now. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon was an idol for wealth, and now it symbolizes wealth. You can't serve both God and things in the world, it's not possible. Jesus says it himself, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. It's not possible. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. That little word of is ek. It means out of or out from among. Is not out from among the Father. It's not out of the Father. But it is of, it came from the world. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Way, way back in the garden, the Garden of Eden we see Satan use these three tactics. And if he used them back there and he used them on the mountain tempting Jesus, we can be confident that these are his three best shots. Okay, he didn't pull any punches when he was tempting the son of God. Okay, so I'm very confident about that. And we see it all throughout history. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Eve saw that the fruit was good. It was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was promised to make her wise. Lust of the flesh, good for food, lust of the eyes, it looked good, pride of life, it was good to make her wise. In other words, Satan tempted her with these three things. This is Satan's playbook, and ever since the garden, he's used the same tactics to entice mankind. We see the the mountain temptation event recorded in Matthew 4. And it says that after fasting for 40 days and nights, Satan came to tempt Jesus. Now, if you imagine yourself fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, I think we would be pretty weak. You know, I certainly would be. I wouldn't be loving life too much right about then. Um, it would be difficult on my physical frame. And it was difficult to Jesus' physical frame. Satan didn't say, okay, I'll give you a few minutes, get back on your feet, get some strength back in you. No. When Jesus was his weakest, Satan poured it on. And he does it the same with every one of us. And he may not do it himself, but he'll have one of his minions do it. He waits until we're knocked down, until we're at our lowest point, you know, physically, mentally, spiritually, at your lowest, and he will pour it on. He will pour on the temptation. He will pour on evil and try to draw you in. Satan appeals in this moment to Jesus' flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. If you look in that passage in Matthew four, the appeal to the flesh is this. Well, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. He used the desire of Jesus' body as a temptation, lust of the flesh. Pride of life, he said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You now, if you are actually the Son of God, and he knew who he was, but he was tempting him. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself off. The angels will catch you. You will not harm yourself from doing that. The pride of life. And finally, the lust of the eyes. Satan, it said, took Jesus up to a very high place, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he showed him uh, his, Satan's glory, and said, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. The lust of the eyes, all the kingdoms of the world. Now remember, God gave Adam charge of creation in the garden. When Adam sinned, That effectively turned creation over to Satan. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He does rule this present darkness that we see all around us. It is Satan's to give. Jesus does not dispute the fact that the world is Satan's right now. I think that Jesus would have disputed it if it wasn't true. He would have said, no, 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 you don't own this, I do. But Jesus knew the dynamics of the situation. Satan, at this point, is in control of the world. It's his to give. And the whole purpose of Jesus coming to earth was to redeem creation, each one of us. Satan was tempting Jesus with an easy way out. He said, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give it to you now. And you won't have to deal with the suffering that you already know is coming. We know that Jesus in his flesh did not want to bear up under that suffering. He wanted another way. But he put his father's commandments above his flesh. The father's will superseded his own will in this moment and throughout his entire life. He was more concerned with doing it how God wanted it done than how he wanted it done. And that's a point that we all have to come to as maturing Christians. You know, your kids obey you sometimes, and they don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. But there comes a point in each one of them that they realize, well, this guy, this gal have lived longer than I have. They may actually know a little more than I do, you know, and it's the same way for us. We come to a point as Christians where we can more easily just turn over things to God. God, I don't know what your plan is in this. I don't know what you're working in my life, but I want you to have it because I know that you know better than I do. Your will I am placing above my own. That's a wonderful place to be. Verse 17, and the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The world is presently in the process of passing away. We see it all around us. In the news, um, in our own lives, the world is in the process of presently passing away. It's interesting with modern science that we have actually found what we once thought to be constants in the universe are actually changing. The world is spinning on its axis slower now than it was before. The speed of light has slowed down throughout history. The world is literally wrapping up. We see all of these things that point towards the wrapping up of creation. The world is presently in the process of passing away and the lust of it. So the lust of the world will pass away with the world and that will be a purifying thing when it happens. But he who does the will of God abides forever. If we do the will of God, the will of God is that every man should be saved. If you're saved, you abide forever. And we get to abide with him in glory for eternity. And what a wonderful hope that is for us this morning. That is what we set our eyes upon. Not the world that's passing away. We can't control much in this life. What we can control is who we place our faith in. And a misplaced faith is a tragedy. Tragedy. You know, the amount of faith that someone has truly doesn't matter that much. You can have all the faith in the world and place it wrongly, and that will lead to destruction. You can have the tiniest faith in the world, the faith of a mustard seed, and place it in Jesus Christ, work wonders for you. Truly will save your soul. Let's keep that in mind this week. Let's place our faith in Christ and let's live according to his will above our own. Amen. Let's pray as we close.